opportunity to leave an imprint on our church that would last generations. And we were going to pull a prank. And so Saturday night before church, when the worship team had finished their practice, we snuck into the church and we pulled it off. We turned the sanctuary completely around. And so the, the back became the front, the front became the back, and, and we, it, much like this room, turned all the chairs around. The pulpit went to the back, now the front of the church. The music team was moved and everything was put into place. We took a picture at the end, and unfortunately I couldn't find it last night, but a picture of myself at the elders board, our faces covered, tears in our eyes because of how much, how much we had laughed and, uh, and joked around about how epic this was going to be. And then we went home and tried to go to bed. I didn't sleep a wink that night. And I giggled all through the night, anticipating the big moment the next morning. And sure enough, it happened. When we pulled up to church, I got out of my car and I started to walk towards the front door of the church and the senior pastor was giving me one of these. <laughs> I walked inside the church and there was a buzz about the place. People were laughing, thank goodness. And we started the service in a really great way. It was actually a really anointed time, and, and when the pastor got up to do, do the announcements, he said to the church, it looks like our intern was busy last night, and we continued to laugh. And it was all good until about 15 minutes into the service when Mr. Ewell arrived. For whatever reason, Mr. Ewell was, well, I don't know what word to use to describe him. Uh, the only word that really comes to mind is the word cantankerous. I'm not sure why he was so grumpy, but this man was grumpy. He was a former elder in the church, and Probably something had happened. Maybe it was serious. I don't know. But this guy wasn't too joyful anymore. And I'd spent the better part of eight months recognizing that our personalities wouldn't mesh too well. And so when he was on that side of the room, I was on this side and vice versa. We just hadn't crossed paths really until that morning. Fifteen minutes into the service, we're in the middle of a song. And you can imagine this traditional long, skinny sanctuary with double doors on the back, French doors with frosted glass, all of a sudden, the doors blow open, and there's standing Mr. Yule. His eyes were as big as a great horned owl when he saw the 120 sets of eyes looking at him, and the place burst into laughter once again. <laughs> to my shock, that scowl that he carried on his face turned upside down into a smirk, and he came in and started laughing with us, and everything was right with the world. I turned to one of our elders, and I looked at him, again with tears in my eyes, and I gave him one of these and said, we made a good decision, <laughs> and we carried on with the service. Friends, this morning, we're talking about making good biblical decisions and a decision-making model that we can use uh, in our lives, in the day-to-day -day moments, and in the big moments, in the midst of a crazy, hectic, and busy world. We're in the the back end of this series called I'm All In But. And the premise or the tension that I want to establish this morning for us is that even in the midst of a crazy world where we often feel like we need to hold on to control of our situations or our decisions, where we feel like we need to press forward and make things happen, even in the craziness and the busyness of all of that, God has a way that he can shape and craft and hone our decision-making so that we live for him in the spaces and places he's created us to be and so that we can walk in better ways. And so if you have your Bibles this morning, I would encourage you to open them to Nehemiah chapter 1 and 2. We're not going to read this word for word, but instead we'll kind of do an overview of this and highlight some verses that I think show us the better way that God has for us when it comes to making decisions in this world. And will show us and help us to create a decision-making model that we can use in the times when we need to make quick decisions 
and in the times when we need to sit back and make bigger ones. So if you have your Bible, we're going to follow along, or you can follow along with me as we, as we walk through chapters one and two here. And if you have a pen and paper, maybe you want to use a connect card, maybe you want to use your device, whatever the case might be, I would encourage you to, chart, to, to plot this down or chart this down. Not that my biblical decision-making model is the be-all and end-all, but perhaps it's a template that you can use and craft and hone to develop this, this model or to develop a model for yourself. As I started to study the book of Nehemiah this week, I was uh, thrilled once again to be able to look here because this truly is one of my favorite books of the Bible. The story of redemption, the story of, of God's work in his people and restoring his people is amazing as it's told through this account of what took place. And Nehemiah was just really a fascinating guy. He was an ordinary guy, but he was a fascinating guy. He's being held in exile. He's being held in captivity. The Israelite nation's being dispersed. And at the point of this story, Nehemiah is being held in the city of Susa, which is in modern-day western Iran. He's being held in this great city, but he's living in the citadel. He's living in the palace. And he's living, considering he's in slavery, he's living a pretty charmed life. He was a cupbearer to the king, which meant that it was his job to test the wine or to test the, the beverages before the king would drink them. And just to test to make sure that they weren't poisoned. And as he's in the palace in Susa, um, he, he's visited by his brother and some other men. Why they were allowed through uh, and to visit him, because it, you know, when he was a slave, we're not sure. But these men get through and they share with him a problem that he needs to make a decision on. We're going to pick up starting here in verse 3. This is what they said to him. They said, those who survived the exile are back in the province and are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. Nehemiah is presented with a problem. And as he's presented with this problem, really there's two different outcomes that, that he could move forward in. He could continue to live his life in the broken comforts of being a slave for the king in a broken world. Or, as was a tension in his heart, we'll find out in a moment, he could look to God and make a decision and move forward with a new plan and, and, and live and restore the identity for him, live and restore an identity for himself and the Israelite people. This morning I want to suggest that there's four postures that he moves forward in and moves forward with that we can practice and use in our lives here today when it comes to how we make decisions and how we move forward in the opportunities that are presented for us. And four things that I think Nehemiah does well, even when there's intense pressure around him to do something with the problem that's presented to him. So the first thing that we need to see here, the first posture that Nehemiah takes is probably one that isn't going to be very popular amongst us who really want to move in this world. As Nehemiah is facing intense pressure to rebuild Jerusalem, to bring dignity back to the Israelite people, to restore their identity, he does something that's almost counterintuitive or, 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 or countercultural to, to what we would expect when we live in busy times. And that is that he slows down and he removes, gen, uh, he removes distractions and he starts to breathe. The whole idea of creating space is intimidating, isn't it? When Nehemiah... Um, in verse 4 here, when, when, he, when he sees this problem, look what he does. It says, when I heard these things, I sat down and I wept. For some days I mourned and I fasted and I prayed before the God of heaven. 
It's intimidating when there's pressure in front of us to make a decision or, or there's pressure in front of us to move forward on whatever it is that we're working with. It's intimidating to think that we should stop for a few moments or maybe many moments and, and look to God in a fresh way. And oftentimes when it comes to making decisions for a variety of reasons, there is pressure in front of us to get things done now. And while this can oftentimes be true, I've come to appreciate in 41 years and 15 years in ministry that there is almost always an opportunity. There's almost always room to slow things down, even for a little bit, to create some breathing room to analyze what's going on. And this is exactly what Nehemiah does. In the case of this story here, this was not a quick pause, but rather it was a lengthy period of time where he stopped and where he looked to God. And this seems to be a biblical pattern that gets established over and over and over throughout the scriptures. If you look at the story of Joshua, before he led the Israelite people across the Jordan River, what did he do? He stopped and he, he prepared the people and he prayed. There's intense pressure. The, the Egyptians were coming. The river, but they needed to get hordes of people across the Jordan River. The Jordan River was flooding. There's lots around him that made the situation tense and messy and, and distracting. But he slows down and he prays. Jesus, on his journey to the cross, took time to slow down and to pause. And whether it was gathering around the table in the upper room to have a meal with the disciples or spending time in the Garden of Gethsemane, there's this intentional posture of slowing down and looking to God. We see this in the life of the psalmist as well. In Psalm chapter 37, verse 7, it says, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. In Psalm 27, 13 and 14, it says, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord, it says. Be strong and let your heart take courage. It says it again. Wait for the Lord. And then finally, in Psalm chapter 62, verse 5, it says, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is in him. So this begs the question, what is the value of slowing down? And I would suggest to us that it does a number of different things. One is, it, is that it creates space to properly identify the problem. It helps us to truly look back and remove the passion out of the situation or the intensity of, out of the situation and truly understand what's going on and, and gain perspective, Some, uh, oftentimes a divine perspective, to really understand the heart of the matter. Number two is that it gives us time to analyze the situation and consider how we're going to take next steps. It gives us time to open our Bibles, to look in, to, to see how God informs us on how to move forward and, 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 and how, to, how to take those next steps. Number three, it allows us to gather information. And there's probably more that takes place there, but so often it's the case that when we slow down, God will be faithful to show up. Actually, not even so often, always, friends. When we are faithful to slow down, even for a brief moment, God will be faithful to show up and show us how he wants us to move forward. And we might think we know how to take the next steps. Even if we've got much experience in life, we might think we know how to move forward, but when we push pause, even if it has to be for a moment, God will oftentimes show us a new way or a new direction or the way that he wants us to go. And he'll help to us to move towards it. 
And so the value of time and space for God is that it creates, it is that it shapes our minds and oftentimes it removes the distractions away from our decisions and it helps us move towards the, the right next thing in life. And for Nehemiah, we will eventually see the benefit because as he slows down and creates space, the creative genius of God will show up. I want to ask us a question this morning. I think it begs the question in all of this, is that where does pressure come from? Sometimes we face situations that are emergent and, and we need to reply and respond very quickly. And, and there's pressure in that, but oftentimes in the day-to-day decisions that we make, where does pressure come from? I want to suggest to us that it's oftentimes when we're up against making a decision, the thing that, that paralyzes us, the thing that, that causes us grief or tension or, or whatever, or stress, is an internal pressure that we create ourselves. We make assumptions that, that the, the next thing's got to get done, that next steps have to be taken quickly. And it's us, really, that's created that tension. It's not coming from outside places. Sometimes it does come from outside places. But if we could appreciate that, that we have an opportunity to slow down for even just a moment, the benefit of that is going to be massive. And the perspective that we will gain, the, the, the voice of God to speak into the situation, the breath of God to breathe into, the, into that situation is so much more available, available to us when we create space. Some of the most creative people that we work with here in the church regularly remind us that the most beautiful pictures that are painted, the most beautiful work that's done comes when there's time for the creative process uh, to be allowed and to take place. And that is so true in our decision-making. Some of the best decisions that we make come when we slow down, even just for a moment, even if it just means that we stop and say, Lord, I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you. Or Lord, would you give me wisdom? Or Lord, would you help me? Even if it's as brief as that, the difference when it comes to outcomes can be significant and massive. Friends, let me implore you that we can create error in our decision-making process when we rush even the smallest of decisions. And so there's huge value in slowing down to just look to God and pray. Well, as we consider, as we move forward here, we need to look uh, at the second step. And the second step uh, rightly or wrongly, I called it get bent. <laughs> and it's a posture of prayer. You're probably thinking, oh yeah, preacher boy, you're calling us to pray. Surprise, surprise, surprise. And yet this is the next step in the, in the decision-making process of Nehemiah. And it's, it's often a step that we can quickly give up on or we can, we can quickly let go of. Look what he says here, verse 5. He says, Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keeps his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open to hear the prayer your servant is praying. I don't think that prayer is going to be something of a surprise to anybody in, a room, in the room here today, but I do think it's important because I think it's often the space that we give up on the most quickly. Reality is, I would guess that for most of us, when we consider decisions that are in front of us, even the small decisions, we're mindful to slow down and to pray. Statistics tell us that in any given day, we make upwards of 35,000 decisions. And we're not going to pray into all of those decisions because some of them are almost mindless decisions that we make. I'm going to step to the right, I'm going to step to the left. We don't really pray about those things oftentimes. 
but 35,000 decisions. And in studies, uh, scholars are telling us that there's upwards of 80% of Americans, not Canadians in this statistic, Americans who believe that there is a higher power or there is a God in this universe that they look up to. Now, you start to break down the stats after that. It's not just the God of heaven that you know, all Americans believe that they're following or worshiping or, or looking to. But for the most part, in, in North American culture, the majority of people believe that in their, in their decision-making, they can look up and count on something beyond themselves to influence those decisions. The problem we have as Christians is that oftentimes we're not willing to, to wait for the answer that God gives to us, or we're not, we don't like the answer God gives to us. And so we make a decision to move forward in our own way or move forward in our own direction. And we forget about the consequences that come with that. One of my other favorite books of, of the Bible, and Pastor Scott's favorite book, is the book of Jonah. And you remember the story of Jonah well, don't you? Jonah and the whale. That story begins in Jonah chapter 1 with these words, The word of the Lord came to Jonah. God gave him a word, and when he heard the word, what did he do? He fled. He didn't like what God was asking him to do. He didn't like what God was inviting him into. It was intimidating. It was, it was scary. It was dangerous. And so he flees. And the consequence of fleeing God and what God was speaking into his situation was that he went out into a stormy sea, was thrown over the side of the boat, and was swallowed by the great whale. And while we have experienced and know this to be true, Nehemiah says to us, there is a better way. He prays a prayer acknowledging who God is. He prays a prayer uh, claiming his identity as a child of God. And he, he invites God into a situation. And he lays it before him. And so I think it's important to note here uh, the amount of time that, that Jonah invests into the significant decision. It's important to understand that, that this was a, a significant part of how uh, the walls of Jerusalem were restored, how the identity of Israel was restored. It's that he stopped and he prayed. Uh, there, this was a significant part of that process. It says in verse 1 here of chapter 1, it was the month of Kislev, which in the modern calendar is the equivalent to the month of November. And then, then it says in the beginning of chapter 2, in the month of Nisan, which in our modern calendar is the months of March and April. This was a significant part. And while we might not have numbers of months to invest into our decision-making process, there is always time and there's always an opportunity to look to God and reach out to Him. I want to suggest, friends, that it's oftentimes when we pray that some, of, uh, some or most of God's creative genius in our decision-making processes is released and plans fall into place. Here, after he prays, Nehemiah makes the decision to go to the king, something he probably never would have considered had he just operated in the flesh and realized and recognized the realities of what he was working with. And as Nehemiah goes to the king, we, King Artaxerxes, we realize in the first part of chapter 2 that God has done a work in the king that was beyond the scope of, of maybe what was appropriate or, or beyond the scope of what was reasonable as Jonah considered how this was going to get moved down the field. And so it's critical and it's important that when we come to making decisions that we stop to pray. And whatever it is that we're up against, 
a decision to go and find a new job, a decision uh, on what to do with a relationship, a decision to go and confront something or someone, a decision to move forward in whatever way it is. When, whenever we're confronted with a decision as Nehemiah was, the importance of slowing down and, and posturing and praying is critical. And it will help us to move forward in God-honoring ways. Some of the boldest moves we've made as a church over the last six years that I've been here and and over the course of of the history of this church have come when men and women have gathered together and slowed down and prayed. Some of the things that have been accomplished, some of the things that have moved forward never would have been accomplished even with the brightest minds in the room had we not stopped and looked to God. And while prayer is probably, if not for sure, the most important piece in our decision-making process. Sometimes it's the piece that we run from first. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 1 says, The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. And later it says in verse 9, it says, The heart of the man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. There's always a way forward, friends. But the best way forward comes as we wait on God through prayer. And so let's make sure that we lean in in our decision-making processes and we bow our knees and lay our situations before God. Well, we want to continue here. And as we look at the beginning of chapter 2, we see the next posture that's one that is absolutely essential when it comes to our decision-making processes. But I would suggest that in our Western culture, something that more and more we are leaning away from rather than leaning into. Look here in verse 1 of chapter 2. It says, in the month of Nisan, March or April, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. And so the king asked me, why does your face look so sad? Why are you not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. And I was very much afraid. But I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why, why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gate has been destroyed by fire. And the king said to me, what is it that you want? It's from here that Nehemiah starts to flesh out his situation and he starts to ask for blessings and next steps in his journey to rebuild Jerusalem. And it's here that he engages with the community around him to start to establish the plan and move the ball down the field. He starts to engage with his community to inform how he's going to take his next steps. And as he does so, he comes um, into an interesting spot. He comes to another person, and a, a person that probably in the flesh he wouldn't have considered going. He goes to the king, a person in authority over him, or a person in authority around him, and he does two things. Number one is he shares the vision of his burden. He shares the need, he shares the opportunity, and then he shares the next steps of the plan And he allows King Artaxerxes to speak into it. Friends, one of the greatest gifts that God gives to us for sure in our decision-making processes is the gift of community or the gift of people around us. And it's so often the case that when we're bold and courageous to share whatever it is that we're up against with people around us, that God's creative process continues forward and it continues to be unleashed as the collective wisdom of people around us have opportunity to speak into our situations. 
One of the greatest gifts that we can give to other people in our lives is to allow them and give them permission to speak into our, into our situations and our stories. And, and one of the blessings we give to them is the opportunity not just to speak in, but to inform us on how we should move forward. And I passionately, passionately believe that as we do so, uh, we need to trust the collective wisdom in the room. We need to trust the sovereignty and the providence of God to place people around us, to speak into our situations and to speak into our stories and trust that God is using them to help lead us forward. And yet it's so often the case in our culture and in our world today, perhaps because we're not wanting to burden others or perhaps because we're embarrassed or perhaps because of other reasons, that we isolate ourselves in our decisions and we do not give other people the gift or the blessing of speaking into our lives. But Nehemiah shows us here something different. He shows us that when, when, when he uh, huddles up with others, when he shares his story and his burden with others, that as King Artaxerxes has an opportunity to speak into it, that it has a profound effect upon the story both here, now, and in the chapters to come. The practice of gathering people around our decisions is critical to moving the ball down the field. And when it comes to making godly, godly decisions in life, the opportunity to do it in a group context is critical because so often it can point us into a better direction, the direction that Jesus has for us. So often it helps to hold the decision-making process accountable and it encourages, us, encourages it moving forward. Friends, sometimes I think that we isolate ourselves because we're embarrassed about the decisions we have to make or the circumstances that we're up against. And I want to emphasize again that so often it's been my experience, as it, whether I've watched decision-making happen or I've made decisions myself, so often it's been the experience that the blessing that comes has come when we shared with others and not held the decision to ourselves. There are people that understand what we're going through. There are people that sympathize and empathize with what we're going through. And there's nothing that the devil wants more than to hold us off to the side and push us into the corner by ourselves to make decisions rather than huddling up together and doing it in a group context. And I'm not saying you have to get in front of the church and share your decision with everybody. Well, after church is done today, I'm thinking about going swimming. What do you think? And everybody speaks into it. No, it doesn't have to be like that. I am, by the way, so if you want to join me at the pool, let's do this. It could just be that you gather one or two people around you. Maybe it's a roommate or a spouse. Maybe it's a great friend or a small group. You gather a few people around you and bless them with the opportunity to speak into your situation and hear what's going on and trust that God is going to use them in a beautiful way, in a creative way, to point you in a better direction. We've got a few opportunities here in the church that bless on such significant levels when it comes to making decision-making. One of them that I want to highlight, and probably because it's under my banner, is the ministry of small groups. And the reality is, is that as a church, we have numbers of groups that meet weekly to study the scriptures and to work through life and, and to pray together. And one of the things I would suggest is one of the greatest blessings that we have when we come to making decisions and gathering people is we have an opportunity to look to the scriptures together. And so it's, what's your decision? Or, you know, what is it that you're up against? Well, let's look and see what the Bible says. We can do this in our small group settings, and we can learn and grow uh, in the Bible together. 
and it's a gift that's given to us. One of the other things that small groups does for us is it holds us accountable to the decisions or it holds us accountable to walk in holiness in our decision-making processes. Other things is small groups or people around us encourage us. They pray for us. They, they lift us up. They bless us with things like meals or, or serve, you know, helping out in the yard or around the shop or, or whatever the case might be. We have opportunities to regularly walk in life with people and be blessed in these ways and beyond. Somebody said to me uh, recently that, you know, outside of Sunday morning, they said, Aaron, you need to encourage people to join a small group because it really is the best two hours or one hour or three hours or however long it is. It's the best two hours in a week that they could ever invest outside of Sunday mornings. And it's true. Over and over and over, as our family has been engaged with different small groups here in the church, it's led us to significant seasons and places of blessing as we've journeyed in life with others. And so if you're here this morning and you're not part of a Bible study or a small group, let me implore you, let me encourage you to get tied in. We have small groups in our church for, for every need and every want. For young families, there's a small group. For young adults, there's a small group. For youth, there's a small group. For people that are older on the, in the spectrum, older than me, there's a small group. For people that want intergenerational ministry and, and, and community, there's a small group. For people who are new to the church, there's a small group. For people who are struggling in life, maybe struggling uh, with grief, there's a small group. There's spaces and places that you can fit in and be yourself and get tied in and connected and share in life together. And through it all, God will bless and he'll move you forward and he'll encourage you forward and you'll grow and you'll be changed and you'll be blessed. And yes, sometimes it's messy. Sometimes you have to eat the wacky snacks that they bring. Sometimes you have to listen to the long, boring stories. But through it all, there's a significant blessing that comes especially when it comes to decision-making, when we do it together. I would add to this too, very quickly, that when it comes to decision-making or just life in general, that yes, there's small groups, but there's also a church family here that wants to engage with you. And so whether it's Sunday mornings in the foyer or maybe it's during the week, you want to come into the office, we as a pastoral team would love the opportunity to rub shoulders with you and hear what's going on in life to be able to discern and, and think through uh, in constructive ways how we can move the ball down the field. And I just want to say from the front publicly that our doors are wide open to meet with you and with others. We relish the opportunity to sit down or go for a coffee or go for a meal or go for a walk or whatever the case might be and just share in life together. These are special moments. And as a pastoral team, we would, we would move heaven and earth. Sometimes we can't. Sometimes we have responsibilities, and so we need to say, can we meet tomorrow or can we meet next week? But we will move heaven and earth to meet with you and share in life together. Well, time is drawing short as it often does when I preach, and so I want to get on to our last point. And, and I think it's one that sometimes uh, we get paralyzed in or sometimes we, we don't think we have permission to do, but I think it's important to. This is where we start to get our hands dirty and where we start to try. This is exactly what we see in the life of Nehemiah. There's an opportunity just to get to work. Look at chapter 2, verse 11. It says, I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me, except for the one that I was riding. There comes a time in decision-making where we need to 
to practically start setting our hands to accomplish the job and start moving forward. Where we need to try, where we've paused, where we've prayed, where we've talked in community and processed it, and we've got a sense of the direction we need to go, and now we just need to start moving forward. And yet it's so often the case in Western culture, we're, we're always hungry for one more sign. And we come up with excuses like, you know what, I'll move forward when this takes place. Or I think I can take a next step when this happens. Or, you know, I just need a little more clarity. And then we can start the process. And I think we paralyze ourselves so often waiting for the next best thing or the next move or the next uh, clear moment rather than just obediently stepping forward and following God. Someone recently said to me, he said, you may have times in your life where God makes it abundantly clear what direction you need to go, and if you don't move in that direction, then you're not following Jesus. Think about that for a moment. It's sin. Paul calls it out. He says, anyone who knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. And so, so often in life, we get to moments in our decision-making processes where maybe we just, we don't have full clarity, but we know we need to step forward. Or others around us are saying, would you just go? Our spouses are saying, would you just move forward? And yet we hold back for whatever reason. Maybe it's fear, maybe it's pride, maybe it's laziness, I don't know. But there comes a point in our journey where we just need to get to work. And that doesn't mean we excuse away the importance of creating space or, or praying or engaging with community. We can still do that. Sometimes maybe it's, a, it's brief, but we can still do that. But at some point, we just need to get to work. One of the things that drives me crazy about the Western church is the way that we uh, operate sometimes more out of reaction rather than being proactive. We respond more to things rather than looking at what's in front of us and stepping into the spaces and places that Jesus is inviting us. And I think this is similar with decision-making. Sometimes we just need to take the bold step and start to walk. And as we take each step, Jesus will illuminate the next step in our journey, the next step in our path, and he'll show us the better way. When Ralna and I came to move here six years ago, just over six years ago, I remember calling the assistant district superintendent in, in the BC district where we were living and said, Brian, I just need to let you know that it's come time. We're going to move. And he and I were pretty close. He didn't know. I'd, I'd kept it a secret from him for a number of reasons that don't even matter at this point. Good reasons and some bad reasons. And he said, well, Aaron, uh, I'm really sad, but he said, just promise me one thing. He said, when you go, step forward to whatever it is that you think God's leading to. But when you put your hand on the doorknob of the next opportunity, just pause for a moment and take a look to the left and then take a look to the right. Because he says, oftentimes when we're obedient, God is asking us to step forward, but he might be asking us to step forward to show us the next opportunity. And it might not be the thing that you think it is moving forward. And he says, sometimes when we're walking through a hallway, we see the door at the end of the hall in this illustration, we put our hand on the doorknob and you look to the left and there's a hallway, that, another hallway that you're supposed to be going down. He says, be open to those kinds of things. But he says, do this. He says, you have to step forward. And so praise the Lord. We were driving here from BC and we got just south of High River and the Lord spoke to us and we knew that this was the place we were supposed to come. But even in the midst of clarity and strong certainty. When we got to the end and when I sat on Pastor Scott's deck on Red Crow Boulevard 
there was a moment of pause where we just said, God, is this the spot? And he released us to come. The miracle of the story of Nehemiah comes in the work of God through the people that he gathered around Nehemiah. And as they stepped out and stepped up into the spaces and places that God was inviting to them, the impossible took place. It was there that Nehemiah experienced and witnessed the hope of God that that Israel was going to, or that Jerusalem was going to be reestablished and that the identity of the Israelite people would be rebuilt. And it came as they stepped out and started to get to work. I believe, friends, that sometimes in our decision-making processes, we miss out on significant blessings because we just get stuck or we just stop. And sometimes it's selfishness or control or laziness. And I think the biblical practice of decision-making comes that at some point, we just need to start moving forward. And our times of quiet, our times of prayer, and our times of community will inform us when we can start to take first steps. So have the courage to step forward, even when it's hard. And first steps could look like a number of different things. It could look like reaching out to somebody. It could mean trying doorknobs. It could mean like putting out your resume. It could mean going to see a counselor. It could mean going on a first date. It could mean writing a letter. It could mean saying, I'm sorry. It could mean saying, I'm interested. It could, say, it could mean, I'm wanting to try. Or, or we can work at this. There's a vast spectrum of what first steps could be and what it could look like. But as we step into this, I believe that Jesus will be faithful to show us a better way and will show us and help us to do the right next thing that will lead us towards blessing, not necessarily ease, but blessing as we make decisions for him. We live in a messy world in a messy time, don't we? Last night, I was at Henderson Lake Golf Course with a number of our police officers here in the city at a promotion party. And as we sat down and just had time to visit, we reflected on what a crazy world Lethbridge is these days. It's messy. It's messy out there, and it's messy in here. And in the midst of a messy world and in the midst of a messy life, our decision-making processes don't have to be impeded or impacted in significant ways. We can still make good decisions. And so as we, as we desire to live in stronger ways for Jesus, let me encourage you that perhaps the best way that you can start to lead is by working through a decision-making process. And maybe the four points that we had here this morning are just the starting point for you. Maybe you want to take this home and hone it and craft it to be personal for you. But as you use this process, as you uh, lead, lean into wanting to, to live in the, in the deeper and, and greater spots for Jesus. Pausing and praying and engaging with community and trying, and as you step forward, will lead you to better spaces as you long to live for Jesus. So what I want to do now as we close our time is I just want to take a moment to pause. This series is be call, being called I'm In But... And this morning, I think there's an opportunity for us just to pause and to quickly pray ourselves and say, Jesus, I'm in and I need to find a better way. Or I'm in and I need courage. Or I'm in and I need your help. Or I'm in and I'm willing to try. I know that and I'm trusting that the Holy Spirit has placed something upon your heart that maybe you need to make a decision in here today. 
And as you do, I think it's appropriate that we stop right now in our service just for a brief moment and lay it before God and say, I'm in and I give my situation to you. So would you bow your heads with me? And we're just going to take a moment and as you pray the prayer that that the Holy Spirit's placing upon your heart, I would encourage you to hold your hands up like a posture of worship and a posture of surrender. And whatever it is that God's put upon your heart to just call out to him in a quiet way. Maybe you want to whisper some words. Maybe you want to say them in your head. I don't know. But we're going to pause for a moment. And I'm going to give you an opportunity just to say, Jesus, I'm in and... And I'll let you finish that sentence. And then when it's done, I'll conclude our service and we'll pray together. Let's take a moment to quietly pray. And then I'll conclude in just a moment. Jesus, I can hear the winds blowing outside. And we're trusting, Lord Jesus, that the winds of the Spirit are blowing inside this place as well. God, for so many of us, we're facing messy situations in life. And we know we need to make decisions moving forward. And so as we do, Lord Jesus, I pray that you'd give to us the courage of Joshua to move things forward and to have courage to stand up and to step out in Jesus' name. Father, we give you the different situations of our life and as we have need to make decisions in all of them, I pray that we, you would lead us to, to make decisions that honor you and bless you and that bring us deep measures of joy in life as well. Spirit of the living God, would you fall fresh upon us here today and would you give us courage once again to step up and to step forward? Would you plant into our minds, into our hearts, seeds of hope so that as we're sitting in the back of the cave like David did in the cave of Adullam, we could look out and see the light of life and the light of our situations and most importantly, the light of Jesus that shines before us and invites us into, into better spaces. Father God, we love you and we thank you. And I thank you, Lord Jesus, that you've modeled to us through the life of Nehemiah better ways to make decisions moving forward. And now, Lord Jesus, as we live our life, we give our lives to you We ask that you'd breathe into them. We ask that you'd touch them. We ask that you'd heal them. We'd ask that you'd work in them. We commit them to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Just as we go, two things I want to highlight quick. Uh, Out in our foyer, uh, we've got these invitations, and I would encourage you to pick them up. They're on some tables just outside the doors there. Pick up an invitation and invite some people around you to join us for Simply Christmas on December the 1st. It's going to be a wonderful event.